Hey, good morning. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. Glad to have you here today. We've already made it to June, so happy June 1st day, which I know is not a day anyone celebrates, but it kind of feels like today we should. So happy June 1st uh, to all of you. Our conversation today with Padre Gotuma is going to be so great. We're, we're really excited about it. This one's coming to you from Minneapolis, where I am. I'm Doug Paget, South Bend, Indiana, with producer and, and co-host today, uh, Dan, and then Belfast. Uh, with Padraig. So, morning, Dan. Good morning, Padraig. Uh, good to see you guys. Hey, uh, it's a beautifully cool, sunny day in Minneapolis. We like to chat about the weather for a minute at the start of these to remind each of us that, first of all, we live on the earth and it matters uh, where we actually live and what's going on outside. And it's one of those things we all share together with the people who live near nearby us. Maybe with our neighbors, we don't see everything the same way, but we are at least experiencing the same uh, the same weather. So, we're having a lovely early summer day here. Uh, how are things in South Bend, Dan? Uh, it is cloudy and about to storm, which I'm actually grateful for because if it gets too hot, it's just unbearable in this little studio off the back of the garage. So little cloud cover is great. Padre, before we talk about more important things, how, how's the weather in Ireland? It's uh, very sunny today, which is lovely. Well, I did not expect to hear that. I, I've <laughs> only been to Ireland a time or two, but I did not see that. I did not see that one coming. So that's great. Yeah, we tend to get about, I don't know, Ten and a half months of gray, but then there's six weeks of sun scattered throughout the year. <laughs> un- unpredictable pockets of months, and um, yeah, we have a nice day today. It's lovely. beautiful, well, excellent. Well, uh, hey, we uh, Dan was super excited. I was also extremely excited about you being on today. Your your voice, your writing, your influence has meant a lot to to us and to the people in our in our world. So th- uh, thanks for giving some time to be with us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, tell, tell us what you do. How, how do you describe it now? You know, when you look at your pedigree, you're an author, you're a poet, uh, you've, uh, you've worked with organizations, uh, the Coromila uh, community on, on peace and resolution. But how, how do you describe what you do uh, when, when someone says, Padraig, what, what do you do with yourself? How, how are you describing it these days? Well, it depends on who's asking and why. You really? know, if, <laughs> if, if somebody needs a really straightforward answer, I say books and radio, nice and easy. Um, and that's a, a straightforward answer because sometimes people just need to know what to fill in on a form. And you yeah, know, if you say, right. "Oh, I'm self-employed and I do some work at the intersection between theology and the arts and poetry and poetry analysis," and that the implication of that for linguistics and conflict, they just kind of look at you going, "We don't have a box for that." So, <laughs> books and radio is straightforward. I had to get a new phone contract yesterday, and you know, they asked me, "What's, what's your work?" And I said, "You know, self-employed and creative work." And, that's nice and easy because there's two boxes they can fit there. Keep it. Vague, my poor yeah. father. Yeah. Whenever my poor father is asked, "What's Padraig doing?" He goes, "Not even God knows." So, <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, I was at a, a, a march rally uh, last weekend in Houston around the the National Rifle Association convention, and we were causing a bunch of good trouble over there. And <clears throat> a bunch of us were trying to come out of the crowd at the same time, and I was recording for some live streaming and. A man was behind me, and he sort of had to kind of nudge me aside to to get around me, and so he did. And then he looked back and said, "Oh, you must be one of those influencers, huh?" And I think you, <laughs> I think somehow he's heard the phrase influencer and just thought that. And you know, I know he was being sort of fun, but it, it sort of does hit pretty deep, and you're kind of like, "Is that really all I'm doing?" You, you do sort of wonder when you don't have a job that feels like it fits right in the middle of what other people. Uh, sort of know and understand. I said, well, I try to do a little more than that, but you know. Yeah. Well, I think there's two things happening in that. In the one, it sounds like, I mean, hopefully he's a nice person, but it sounds like in the moment he was just trying to put you down. Um, 
And that's never going to be fruitful, that kind of communication. And in the second hand, like, uh, who of us does have a job that's straightforward? You know, even somebody who has a job where you're a dentist or a bus driver or whatever, every day within the context of that likely throws something different up and your relationship to even something that is straightforward will always change. And so in the context of that being loads of people are freelance, you know, uh, and I, I don't see it as that strange anymore because I think the reality is, is that few of our jobs are the same every day for, for years on end. Most of us have a job where it's a bit vague. And so it's just some of us don't have a kind of a broad umbrella of a title that makes mm. it work. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, Padraig, one of the things we want to talk about today, um, you're in Ireland, you grew up, came of age during the Troubles, and I'm curious about the similarities and maybe differences between what was going on in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s in Ireland and the divisions in the United States today. I was wondering if you... See any similarities? See any differences? And how that, how growing up during that conflicted time shaped you as a person? Yeah. So I suppose the first thing to say is that you know British-Irish conflict has been going on for centuries, <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. I grew up in Cork on the very south coast. So we were not experiencing what people in the north were experiencing in the sense of um, that kind of sectarian divide, as well as the the regular. Um, possibility of somebody being murdered in your family or yourself or somebody in your street or in your city. So, But I, I did grow up within a time, and it's ongoing, where the question about British Britishness in Ireland is a very live question. Um, that affects our language, that affects um, our politics, that affects the presence of a British border in the, on the island of Ireland. And so uh, as a consequence of that, I suppose I grew up constantly aware of the weight of history in terms of how to read the present. And I think that is, it surprised me when I met people from England, for instance, who didn't know their own history, because growing up in a place where where your entire culture has been shaped by its relationship to an external, powerful, um, imperial force. Growing up in a place like that, you have to learn history. You have to learn, how did we get here? What happened? How did that all happen? What's our version of the past? What's our mm. version of our borders? Um, and so I just assumed that English people um, also paid attention to their own history. And it was to my complete shock to realize that um, that isn't the case. Even people who do history the whole way throughout secondary school kind of learned a friend of mine who's a historian. She said, ultimately, even at degree level, the basic assumption was that you'd learn about, and she's English, the basic assumption was that you'd learn about the Tudors and the Nazis, which is to say, you know, British queens and kings, um, and then also World War II, with very little attention to empire. And mm. that, that really surprised me. I'm always very reluctant, even though there are some broad levels of wisdom that you can apply from the learning about Ireland um, internationally. I'm always very reluctant to ever imply that that's a template. I know that's not what you were asking for, but but there are no templates from one place of conflict to another because you need to, you know, you need to look uh, broadly. In some situations around the world, it's really clear there's an aggressor and a victim. In other situations around the world, you see that there's victim against victim and they're, they're levying whatever power they have. 
Um, and so the, the implication that one place of conflict can automatically be a template for others is, can, can cause more pain than you'd want it to, to mm-hmm. cause. And where you'd want to alleviate pain, you're actually <laughs> creating it or, or deepening it. When it comes to the question as to whether there's anything that I can say about the United States, um, I suppose one of the things is to say uh, uh, that any place of conflict will always need to find a way to reiterate a telling of the past in a way that pays attention to the to the to the narratives that were um, not listened to while that past was going on, and so it, it seems utterly necessary to me when it comes to the question of the United States that that history curricula in the schools, I don't just mean one book in the library, I mean mm-hmm. the actual foundational history curricula um, needs to be informed through both an indigenous and an enslaved um, point of view so that those voices are not the occasional, oh, by the way, here's the version about how they'd say it, that it would, that it would speak to it there. That even... Like the beginning points of history are always defined by those with more power. And so the question really as to when did the United States begin? What are its names? You know, if yeah. you start with yeah. Christopher Columbus, you're starting in the wrong place. I'm mm-hmm. saying something that's very obvious. But I am saying it from the point of view of thinking any place of conflict will always... One of the first items of conflict is where do you begin history? And if you only begin history from the point of view about when a particular conflict was visited upon a population, well, then you're doing a few things. One, you're implying there was no history beforehand. And two, you're forcing that culture into a situation where its primary articulation of itself is in the form of defense. Even if that defense didn't last very long before they're overpowered, it's a poor place to begin because culture is not only about defense. Culture is about language and what thrives and what works and what um, flourishing was happening as well as what skirmishes were happening um, previous to the arrival of, of, a, of a combatant, which certainly Europeans were. And so in the context of that, I suppose what we know about the necessity of finding ways to tell history here, I think that there is something really important in in all zones around the world where there is contested stories of the past and where indigenous voices have been um, have been deliberately not listened to and deliberately not included when it comes to the telling of history. Um, and the studying of history, I, I think that's really important because that that says something today. It it does something that the Russians call astranyinye, defamiliarization. It's like pulling the carpet from under you to realize, mm. oh wow, Europeans aren't the center of the story. Mm. Okay, they were they were a terrible interruption, but um, actually, let's talk about what was flourishing first. And what we need is the defamiliarization of European voices to 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 see themselves as center stage. I say that as a European. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's so helpful. Thank you for that. Uh, when someone talks about history, they're really talking about stories that we tell. You, you addressed this really well as a refer- reference to that that TED Talk you did. But this idea that we're telling a story, like literally embedded in the word history, right, is that there's a story that's being told. And rarely is there only one story being told at a time. There's always more than one thing happening at any given time, and they relate to each other, and they interlay with each other, and they're sometimes competing with each other. 
you know, if we were to today, when we go to talk about the story of what we did in this conversation, just this little microcosm, you know, we'll talk about maybe what time we came on and hit some highlights of what we talked about, where we came from, but there's a whole lot of other things going on, right? There's, we're all part of multiple stories. Dan has a plumber at his house that's also working in the background. So he's got that piece. And, you know, I've got a bunch of tech stuff going on and somebody ringing my doorbell in the middle and you've got, you're in, you're in one time zone and I'm in another, Dan is in a third. Like we're all in these different places. And one of the things that I think some of us struggle with is which parts of which stories are told and which parts are left out and which parts are emphasized in the order that they go in. And in some ways, poets and artists and theologians and all the work that you do, um, in some ways you're, um, you're working with that, with those stories as if they're, they're pieces of a, of a medium to try to, you know, put them together in a way to say something additional. Is, is, is that right? Or I don't, I don't know. Any, any thoughts about that? Well, you're right that at any one time there's many stories happening. I'm always interested to know, A, what stories people choose to tell and, and what stories they choose to keep private. Um, but the word choose is really important in there because to make a choice you need to be free. So another level of that is what stories are they allowed to tell and what stories are they not allowed to tell. Mm. And so in the context of this, you've got a a free choice of privacy or disclosure, but you've also then got perhaps an imposed choice about what is permissible and what's not. And that, I think, is a really interesting way to ask about the questions that we, t we tell. Mm -hmm. And then I suppose there's another level about the stories that we're in, but that we don't have the words for yet. Like, it, yeah. there's, there's a nice idea that, you know, with the internet, <laughs> um, suddenly everything's accessible, but that's not true at all. We're, we're, we're full of mystery for ourselves, and half the time we don't know what's really going on. And there will be a story that about today or about this season of my life that I'll probably only be able to tell in 20 years' time with reflection. Mm -hmm. So that's another level, the level at which we are mysteries to ourselves. And I, I suppose partly where for me the overlap of theology and conflict and poetry from is, is the level of inquiry about all of that. I, I don't feel the need that I have to tell mm -hmm. stories, um, but I'm always interested in who is permitting me denying me the possibility of telling certain stories. That then vent brings us to the overlap between story and choice and power. Um, I'm gay and, you know, for a long time there certainly were many stories that I wasn't allowed to tell and that caused um, all kinds of levels of internal oppression and suppression that taught me a lot about how um, some communities that say they're welcoming operate, which isn't to say that they're totally not welcoming, but they're welcoming of only certain experiences. Yeah. And if they want to welcome other experiences, mm -hmm. they want to even to dictate the terms within that. Like some one time I was invited to speak at a conference and somebody said, we'd like you to talk about um, perhaps some of the, the real suffering that's been involved for you as a gay man. And I said, why? Like, why do you want me to only be a victim? I'd like to talk about the gift of being gay. And they were like, mm. oh, no, no, no. Mm. People wouldn't cope with that. Uh. And so here we see an example about the ways within which power can operate itself. Mm -hmm. Who is it that's dictating to say this population of people? We really want to hear a heartwarming, heartbreaking story about how you overcame oppression. And to go, well, what if I just tell you a story that I want to tell? 
that doesn't fit into the the hermeneutic that you wanted to fit into. Mm. And in the context of this, this is where you see theological studies really, really helping paying attention to the dynamics of what it means to be alive in the world today where there are powers operating. And, and when you use the phrase story, some people only hear that and think someone's going to start with, did I tell you the one about, and they've got sort of a beginning and a middle and an end or whatever, you know, it's like a yeah. telling of stories. I feel like in all your work, you're using story both in that way that we should do that and talk about the time that thing happened, but also taking facts and taking information and data and how that's all put together is also a part of a storytelling action. And sometimes okay. people don't recognize that and they think, oh, look, let's just stick with the facts or, you know, currently in the United States because of COVID responses, people are like, let's just stick to the science and not all the editorial around it. And, you know, when you sort of understand how story works, the most basic data and the most simple facts that are being aligned in a certain way and told in a certain order are actually part of a story frame. And yeah. so can you say a little bit more about the power of story that's not only the stories of people's experiences as yeah. we most typically hear of it? I like the questions you're asking, Doug. Um, so, like, story, as did I tell you the one about, they're great. You know, you remember them. They're possibly entertaining or heartwarming. Um, they can sometimes be um, perhaps just a, uh, a useful anecdote. And what's happening in stories that are saying, we are thinking about climate change. And let me tell you what's happening on one of the islands of Guam today and to just focus into the particularity of that with facts with information and with saying here's one person to whom this is happening on a daily basis that is a, a way of using story to highlight something that's much bigger elizabeth bowen a 20th century modernist writer from ireland says to turn from everything to one face is to find oneself face to face with everything and in the context of this, we see the extraordinary potency of allowing ourselves to pay attention to a story. And then the question is, which story is selected? Do, you know? Do we want to tell the story that makes people comfortable or uncomfortable? Do we want to tell the story that fits into a current delineation of us versus them? Or do we want to tell a story that doesn't fall neatly into that at all? A story that's that kind of disrupts. Um, I was listening to This American Life uh, yesterday on a drive and they repeated an episode um, about a family who had lost a daughter in a 2012 mass shooting I think in Colorado she was going to the cinema to watch Batman and that family have found great meaning through going along to simply be support to parents who are facing the worst days of their lives when their child is facing a mass shooting. And of course, because of what's happened in New York State and in, in the state of Texas over the last couple of weeks, This American Life re-aired that episode. And what I really admired about their choice of story is that they chose to tell stories that don't fit too neatly in. Mm. The family whose daughter was murdered um, they they believe in having guns in the house, but they also believe in really, really careful vetting measures. So they don't fit in too neatly to one side or the other. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think what 
what I think the choice of that is doing is paying attention to say, we want to undergird the idea of that it's for versus against and propose that actually there is a population of people. In fact, you could argue an enormous percentage of the population of people, perhaps 80% of the population of people, are not disrupted by the idea of saying, let's make things safer, <laughs> you know, rather yeah. than only defining things by the absolute for and the absolute against. Uh, loud as they may be, they might be very loud minorities, that actually there might be a compromise in the middle that can embody the possibility of progress. And that isn't just about the relationship of America to guns. It is about the, the question to do with what stories do we choose to amplify and how do we choose stories that are wise in terms of not playing into a sectarian mm. divide that mm -hmm. just pits side A against side B and then we're all just going to fight and fight and fight till we all die. That'll be the end. There'll never be any resolve. And so within the context of this, you see how the curation of stories to amplify in public is a really important choice to, to make. Mm -hmm. And I... I follow journalism that pays attention to that, which isn't about a sweet story. It isn't about a saccharine story. It is about a story deeply researched, full of fact, that doesn't fit into an entertaining anecdote. Hmm. So stories can disrupt and stories can also just feed into a narrative, like you said. Um, art can do the same thing. I came to know your work through Peter Rollins and Icon, this kind of creative community. And one of the goals was to kind of burst bubbles of perception and disrupt thinking and get people to think differently, basically. You would uh, create these spaces and kind of interactive art exhibits that would poke holes in people's worldview. Can you talk about the power of art to disrupt and yeah. uh, kind of change perception in that way? Well, I suppose one thing I'd want to do, Dan, is to reflect back to you that what you're telling me is your experience about what we did, which yeah, that's, that's lovely to hear. We didn't have any aims. Our aims really were to get together as a bunch of people, all of whom were artists and all of whom had been affected by religion in our lives. Um, mostly evangelicals. I'm not an evangelical, I never have been, but most of the people were evangelicals. And to try to make some sense together by exploring the the edges of our own perception so our our primary audience was ourselves which can make us sound sound like we were self-involved people but i actually think it, it contributed to the mm -hmm. to the attempt at integrity of art because if i'm always thinking oh yeah and then we're going to do this to them and then we're going to do mm. that to them them being the audience well then they're just the they're just the muppets that we're acting our control over. And one of the things that I loved about ICON was that our, all of our gatherings, and like for a broad context, ICON met in a pub once a month for a liturgy in a pub where we take some theme and do some in, interactive art about it. There might be some exhibition, there might be some speaking, there might be some poetry, some movement, some liturgy. You know, it was a kind of like a pub liturgy um, for people who, who were in a certain sense, fluent in the questions of religion, but also disrupted by the questions of religion. And we were exploring all of those things for ourselves. And the point of it was, come along if you want to. You don't have to. But if you come along, you aren't the guinea pigs upon whom we're exerting our control. We're inviting you into saying, here's how we're disrupted. And if you want to keep coming along, great. And if you want to stay coming along, fantastic. You know, get involved. And I, I loved the approach of that to the question of art. 
that the it didn't have an imagination of an audience upon whom we were to do any outworkings mm-hmm. of disruption or theology or art. It was an invitation in. And if it's not for you, it's not for you. Go somewhere else. You know, enjoy go yeah. where go where something is for you, you know. And mm-hmm. so I, I really liked that because one of the things that that di- disrupted theologically was the imagination of a pulpit, whether that's a pulpit in a church or a pulpit in a gallery. Um, it disrupted the idea that there is a message to be said that I assume you don't know and that I will, through some kind of um, rhetoric, impact upon you. And that's one of the primary things about evangelicalism that I find so disrupt that I find so distasteful at times, which is the imagination that everything is summed up in the sermon, and that that's the real work of the week for whoever the minister is. And uh, what I loved is to say, come into the explosion of our own lives, and let's talk together as people who are saying, "What do you see, and what do you see?" So that's mm. what I would say. The, the one of the the artistic statements of Icon was. That's great. Well, it was a real lifeline for me. I was a you know, worship pastor in an evangelical church and just sort of stuck in that world. And what you were doing was, was really eye-opening and great for me. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, yeah and, and I'll just reflect on that, that we were in similar spaces at similar times uh, here in the U.S. And then a lot of us have met and become friends and stayed together over a couple of decades because that was 20, 20 years ago, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe 20 plus years ago. And me too. And I think back, I was at a community called Solomon's Porch here and we were pursuing our own narratives of these things. And now I look back on that and, and it was two decades ago and we were younger people at a different time. And I'm sort of mixed with, man, I miss that so much. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't have anything like that now. You know, even even that thing that we were doing early days didn't hold very long because those experiences start to change you to a point that you're just not doing that anymore. But now I look back and I think if I were to stroll into the things we were doing 20 years ago at the age that I am now and the social location where I am now, I'm not sure I would understand what we were doing <laughs> back then. Like it was, uh, it was really in the moment, right? And and in a in a time, and I, I don't even know how much it carried over. On the other hand, other people like Dan is doing with you are doing with lots of movements from two decades ago where their their experience with it is something more contemporary now and they're looking back on that time and then it's replaying itself in their lives in ways that are impacting. And so I'm interested in your thoughts on that. And, and, and that's also kind of what history does, right? When you retell a story from a previous time in this context, it comes alive again and, and it starts to have its own power and effect now. not yeah. History isn't only talking about what was and storytelling isn't to say something that happened in the past and you know, too bad you weren't there. It was really great for those of us who were. It has a present function to it. And that's kind of mysterious to me, just that human reality. Yeah. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, what you're saying really is something about the question of time and what the nature of time is, which of course we don't know. It's a mystery. What is time? It's it's completely confusing. Um, but one of the things we know about time is that we experience it. And so therefore time is experiential. And the um, the subjectivity of the experience of time is really important. And I would like to think that the era for when people were able to ask questions that interspersed their own life, their cultural life, their religious life, and their political life, that that was a moment in time 
20 years ago. But 20 years ago, people were saying, ah, here, listen, there was liberation theology in the 60s. And before that, people were saying, ah, here. And so in a certain sense, while I wish we could achieve, and of course we make incremental movements forward, the, the process of paying attention to, to how does a guiding text, whether that's a constitution or a scripture, how does a guiding text influence the way we live our lives today in safety? That is a continual repetition that we keep on coming around to. And the impulse to do that can often make you feel like you're alone. You're the first ones doing it. But with time, I think, comes the realization that, oh, wow, that's what, that's what was happening in the 60s with liberation theology. Yeah. That was what's happening in the civil rights movement. That was what was happening with the suffragette movement. That was what was happening yeah. with the movements for independence, with the collapse of the British Empire, particularly in the 20th century, that all of these things were motivated by by the, the wish to pay attention to founding documents, whether constitutional or scriptural, to pay attention to that and to say, we want to reframe that. And that that is one of the things that gives me hope. One of the things that doesn't give me hope is the way within which you can feel like we're the only ones doing it and we're the first ones to do it. And therefore you can think anybody older was, was wasting their time all the time. No, they were doing the same thing and they were creating the platform upon which the next generation can do the next thing and the next generation could do the next thing. So I, I think you're, both of you are asking questions about time and I, I really like the, the recognition and I mm. think a humility regarding how to read the contemporary time of movements for a better good and movements for a common good, to look at your podcast <laughs> title. I, I really like recognizing that that is contemporary as well as historical. You, you tell a story in your TED Talk about of someone you were teaching and this person asked you a question and it's sort of humorous. You know, it's this, this person that says, why? And you can tell the story if you want to, if you don't remember it. Uh, I, I just I remember really listened to it. Okay. Um, and there's something I think powerful about that story, if you would tell it again, that I think we're experiencing in the United States right now. And I would like to reflect our experience and hear your comments about that one. And that is what this person describes in the story seems to be something that people in the United States would say, well, of course we wouldn't be hostile against someone because of the nation they're from or the religion that they are a part of. We wouldn't do that. But politics is a choice. And so mm -hmm. when I'm going to see as my enemy this person with a different political agenda than I am, it's because safety is at hand. If they get their way, people are going to be hurt and they could simply choose differently. So I'm going to think differently about people who choose an idea to hold versus people who are part of a community or an identity or a culture. Mm. So it wasn't a very good way to ask that question, but because you know the story and I know the story, but other people probably don't that the person told, but I don't know. Can you just, yeah. well, I, I, yeah. So I used to be a school chaplain and there was, um, was a girl who used to be part of the chaplaincy. She was about 11. And one time in a, in a, in a session with a bunch of other students, she um, said to me, um, I've got a question, Podrick, answer me this. And she was, a, I think she'd make a great lawyer. She was really good at laying out her, her premise and then building upon a premise and then coming in with the question. So she said, um, God made us all right. And I mean, I, I wouldn't really go along with that statement, but I knew that she was just establishing the premise. And I said, Grant. And she goes, and God loves us all right. I said, yeah, Grant. Okay. She was building up towards her, you know, tour de force of a question. And then she said, answer me this. Why did God make Protestants? And I thought this was hilarious, you know, such a great question and such a, such a question 
a such an Irish question because the question about Protestants really isn't about theology. It's a question about Britishness on the island of Ireland, which isn't to say all Protestants are British, but certainly history would lead you to understand that you know, Protestants and Britishness were uh, were were a way within which British identity in the island of Ireland was manifest. And she was a great footballer. So I said to her, look, I know lots of football teams um, filled with Protestants that would be delighted to have you on their team. And she was like, really? <laughs> I went, yeah, yeah, totally. And then she went, wow. And then she goes, what about French people? What God made them? <laughs> <laughs> um, Ireland had just been beaten by France in, in a football game the weekend before. And there was yeah. some question as to whether the final winning goal by France was, was, it, was, um, was allowed or not. You know, anyway, the, the goal was allowed. But of course, all the Ireland fans were like, no, no, it was a foul. And she was clearly on that side. So <laughs> partly I loved her imagination that there were all these different gods that made different populations of people. I thought that was magnificent. Um, but one of the things that she's asking is like, part of the very local context to what was happening with her is that she was asking this question from the point of view, not of a society that has two different sides that are equal, but opposite when it comes to their political agenda. She was asking this from the point of view of saying, I'm a Catholic in the north of Ireland. We don't have Irish language rights. This state in Northern Ireland was established as a Protestant state for a Protestant people. She was asking this from the point of view as an inheritor of an identity that said we have been marginalized and systematically excluded. So one of the things she was asking was, why did God make people with power who enact power in the way they have? And that's an interesting question. And she was asking it in, a, in, an, in an 11-year-old's way. <laughs> And I was trying to answer it in a way that was appropriate to an 11-year-old, which was to speak about the possibility of relationship and to speak about the possibility that, you know, 100 years after the partition of Ireland, things aren't as bad for Catholics as they were then. They could be better, <laughs> you know. Um, the British government could certainly treat um, the, the Catholic Irish passport-holding population of the north of Ireland much better. But we, uh, it, there has been extraordinary improvement. So I was trying to speak about the possibility of relationship because that was, I think, an appropriate answer to give to an 11-year-old. But she was asking this question really in a way where she was exerting a political imagination, which again, wasn't a 50 side, you know, side A, side B, each with the same amount of power. She was asking it from the point of view of saying, why would God make populations of people who exert control over other populations of people? And that is a beguiling question and a question that pursues the world. You know, we think at the moment about um, Russia and Ukraine. Why would God make that? And that, I think, is a, is a, a theological question and an anthropological question that we, we continue to ask. Yeah, and you, you make a comment in that presentation where you say th these were the stories given to her. Right. Mm -hmm. So now she's trying to make sense out of these stories and trying to trying to piece them together. And that that's a powerful thing because we can tend to think it's easy to judge our own our own narratives and to be hard on ourselves about the way we view the world and to not give ourselves the grace to recognize that we were given a set of stories and explanations about the world, how it works, who we are, how this all operates. And that at some point we recognize that those stories are at best insufficient. Maybe we're deliberately harmful. We start to take apart the authority structures that gave us these gave us these stories, and then what do we do? You know, uh, because yeah. we still end up living in a place where there's people with competing stories, 
And as sad as it is, tends to be that one or some are going to win over others. And then what do we do? And how do we not just end up with an enemy narrative in this or, you know, with a perpetrator and a victim and a hero story? Sure. And it's a complication. Uh, one of the things you're, you're implying, I think, is the we all have inherited um, implicit biases. I think that's probably true. We also have inherited implicit insights, and she did, certainly, because she was trying to ask mm -hmm. a question, because she had heard a question, she had learned the question from a family that were part of a community that had been systematically oppressed. And so it wasn't only sectarianism she'd learned, she'd also learned insight. And that was coming out in an 11-year-old's way, but she knew something and she was asking about it. And it wouldn't be sufficient just to say, um, oh, that's cute and you're sectarian. <laughs> uh, but it also isn't sufficient just to say, oh yeah, this is the way it was set up and it'll never improve. Somehow what we need is something that can pay attention to things have been improving incrementally and you need to pay attention both to your implicit insights and to your implicit biases mm -hmm. that come along with that. Because oppressed people can oppress other people. <laughs> that is a terrible truth that I wish weren't true, but it is yeah. so true. You look at the history of the Irish. We have been treated so poorly through empire. And then you look at the mid-1800s as a result of that atrocious thing called a famine, which wasn't a famine. Um, when you look at this massive migration of Irish people to so many parts around the world, and in so many instances, Irish people joined in the dispossessing of indigenous people around the world and joined in the continued enslavement of enslaved people around the world. And so the idea that Irish people suffered, so therefore we are the friends of the suffering elsewhere, that is something that history is not kind to, and history really mm. dismantles that imagination, rightfully so. And I think Irish people have to pay attention to the reality of that. And so uh, it, it is a lovely world where victim and um, aggressor, you know, one is lovely, one's terrible, and therefore it's easy to choose which side. <laughs> um, yeah. In the context of people who've been oppressed, there is still going to be the question as to how, within the context having been, of having been oppressed, do we pay attention to the calls of justice and accountability and solidarity within our own community and within our own identity? How do we manifest the very thing that we say we are opposing in treatment of us and make sure that we are demonstrating the kind of thing internally that... Um, that embodies the very future we say we wish to pursue. I, I know we have we have other things we want to get to. You, you made a little side note there uh, that in the in the Irish history and it's become a big piece of the American history that there was a famine, something called a famine in Ireland, but it wasn't a famine. I've only ever heard of it as the potato famine. Uh, that seemed important to you to note that the story's been told that way but there's another yeah. way to understand that. Is that worth Oops. you telling us about? Well, I'll try to do it quickly. I mean, so the Act of Union was put onto Ireland in 1801, which made Ireland part of this thing called the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. That wasn't a democratic process. Of course it wasn't. Um, Ireland became known then as what Britain's kitchen garden. Um, so Ireland, an agricultural place um, with a huge rural population. Dublin was a tiny city, a big town, really, just 250,000 out of 8 million of a population on the island of Ireland. Um, so Ireland, by the time the 1840s came along, was producing, I think it's 60% of the corn and 70% of the beef that was being consumed in Britain. So ships were going all the time 
to Britain. So hence Ireland being known as Britain's kitchen garden. And there was an, uh, this was a, po- a, a huge amount of, a, of an impoverished population who were peasants on their own land, who had to pay rent for their own land. Um, and, uh, were entirely potato dependent, really, in terms of the crop. And over the few years leading up to 1845, there was a potato blight making its way across Western Europe. So it was known that it was going to come to Ireland. It was known with years of knowledge because it was moving westward. And so there was an appeal made to the London government to say, can the food that's going to Britain be used to support the population of Ireland. And there is a letter written by the Prime Minister saying, no, if there's fewer Irish people at the end of this blight, well then so much the better. A million people dead and a million people gone in three years. That is not famine, that's choice. Mm. And so I'm never content to pay attention to the word famine because famine is usually some kind of natural disaster that is exploited for the purposes of people who want to be benefited in some way. And so to call it a potato famine is to utterly imagine that this was of natural occurrence. It wasn't. There was plenty of food to feed people. My great-great-granddad was seven. He was born in 1840. Irish speaker, his family in 1847 um, went to to a local Protestant soup kitchen, which meant that you had to convert to Protestantism in order to get soup. And... um, he lost his parents and his brother during that time, never saw them again for the rest of his life. Presumably they're dead, buried in a mass grave somewhere in West Cork. Now, he was brought in by a Protestant schoolmaster who taught him English because he didn't speak any English and who never tried to convert him, which I'd love to, I'm I'm looking at the moment to try to find the name of this Protestant schoolmaster. So there's a great story within the context of this that does disrupt some of the imagination of Britishnesses and Irishnesses and English language and Irish language. However, the broader context of it is to say that there was no need for this famine. And you you mentioned there that that tends to inform the way you hear the phrase famine used today. Do you tend to feel that? order, anything. Who's calling it what? This is, again, the question of story. Who is defining where the story begins and the story ends? Who is calling who a rioter? You know, (laughs) Who who is defining the story that's being told? Who's choosing the headline? Who was saying who the baddies and the goodies are? All of these ways within which story has an implicit appeal to us. Who's the baddie? Who's the goodie? When did it start? When's it going to end? What will a successful outcome look like? All of these are story markers. And I do think that there, it is really worthwhile learning some of the tools to say, really? Which is the part of the act of good journalism, uh, which is to say, um, let's ask, is there another way of telling the story? Which isn't about pretending that there's two mm. equal but op- opposite sides. It is about saying, who's being benefited by this and who isn't? Here's a metaphor that I find helpful when it comes to this, is to take a metaphor from theatre. So when you go along to see a show, you know, a, a play, um, there's what's happening on the stage, okay? And often conflict is played out as to what's happening on the stage. But I want to ask, and I'm not the only one, to say, who's writing the script? Who's paying for it? Who's being entertained? Who's making money? Who's behind the scenes directing? What's happening? Who's, cre- who's um, manipulating the stage? Who is saying, here's where the stage ends and here's where it begins? And in the context of all of this, these give us some questions to ask about any kind of conflict that might be happening in your church, for instance, you know, person A and person B are fighting. And I want to go, who created the stage upon which this, this is happening? Or it can be happening in your local community 
or it can be happening in your local society or it can be happening in your club, your yoga group, your church group, your state government, your national government. Who is creating the stage on which, on which this is happening and who is benefiting from the performance of this part of the conflict? Because it, while this is being performed, they can do other things and they can make money. And here is what I always want to ask, is to think the stage is bigger than the stage that we're seeing. So therefore, let's ask some better questions. And these are story-based questions, but they're story-based questions that are often quite uncomfortable. Mm. I, I ask the same of myself, you yeah. know. I, I think, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm a, I'm a white man from Ireland, my God. Like, of course, I've got to ask questions to, to take me away from the stage and to think, what's the stages where I think they're, they're working, where actually they're only working for me? I would imagine you, as you've shared these kinds of ideas publicly and interpersonally, some people are like, yeah, but Patrick, you're just making it so complicated. There's some things that just aren't this complicated, right? And we all sort of hear that. And I think about in a story that made national, international news, so maybe you know it, that when there was a group of Nazi sympathizers in the United States organized a rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, and that led to the death of uh, Heather Heyer by one of those people who she was struck by, by his car. And it was called the Unite the Right rally. And the president of the United States at that point, Donald Trump, came out and said, hey, there are good people on both sides. And people justifiably, including me and others, you know, wanted to put down a marker and say, what you're doing there is sending a message to these people that you think they're good people. Someone could argue that what he did there is something closer to what you were describing. It's more complicated. There were more people in the group. There were lots of stories going on. This was a coalition. There's not just one thing. So can you just talk about how in practical moments of crises, and you, know, you can take that and just extrapolate it over to, to many places where there's something in us as people of all kinds, it seems to me, that just want there at times to be like, Look, this one's not complicated. Yeah. How do you how do you talk about that? Well, you see, here's the thing: is I think it is complicated, but not in the way it was being put across. Saying there's good people on both sides isn't complicating it. It's actually trying to make it like I wish I wish you had had a public voice at that stage that in that role was speaking to complexify things, but that wasn't what was happening because part of the complexity of that has been saying people have been sold a lie to say that the idea of freedom is hampered by the idea of accountability and paying attention to your past. And that's mm -hmm. the lie. And so I, I would really like complexity to have been brought into that, but it wasn't. Actually, what was being brought into that was terrible and dangerous um, simplicity. One of the questions that I think always has to be asked when it comes to the question about how, how we act in public is, is to pay attention to the question of impact. Mm. Usually when, when I do something wrong and somebody says to me, hey, Patrick, that was wrong. One of my first instances is to say, oh, but here's what I meant. Okay. To speak about my intention. And even when my intention makes a lot of sense, I think part of the art of growing up is to realize no matter how good my intentions were, actually I caused deep harm to the person. And I have learned to say, look, I had all kinds of readings of my intention, but I'm not even going to say them to you at the moment because what I'm hearing is that my, the impact of what I did caused deep hurt, and that's true. And that is complicating the story I tell myself, because it's to say, who gets to define the, the impact of the story is not the person who wasn't affected by it, but the person who was. 
and in the context of things that happen where somebody loses a life, what you're looking for is to say, there might be 10 ways to tell this story. But what we know is that what we really need to do is to pay attention to the one where somebody is dead and they are not alive. And if we can't cope with that, well, then we're being led poorly. And we're being told that anything that questions your telling of your own lovely um, intention, that that is an attack. And it's not. It's actually an invitation into something called accountability, which is also an invitation to something called citizenship. And that, I think, demonstrates something, the kind of complexity that we're looking for, which is to allow ourselves the complexity of asking ourselves questions about the stories of power that privilege us, but don't privilege others. And I think we're all capable of that. I don't think that one community is better or worse than this and the other, or one side of the political divide is better than this or the other. In fact, if I was to speak broadly, I actually think that the right tends to be far more tolerant than the left. I think the left will absolutely rip its own apart like that, <laughs> delighted to do the very work of your detractors for them. And so I, I don't think that this is something that makes anybody feel easy. It's difficult for everybody. And in the context of this, therefore, I think what we need is leadership that's willing to do it to themselves. And therefore to say, this is not an attack on your freedom mm. or your integrity. This is actually a demonstration of your freedom and integrity to mm. be free enough and have enough integrity to ask the question of, is the story I tell about myself causing the death of others? And if so, how therefore do I begin to imagine a different kind of embodying of that? Wow. So good. I, I get, you know, to, to overly simplify it and some that, that initial phrase that you said, uh, I don't know if you said this or if I made these words up in my head, simply to declare that something is complicated is not recognizing that it's complicated. That's kind of an act of simplifying, like, hey, nothing we can do about it. Things are complicated, right? Yeah. Uh, that's a way to sort of pull yourself out of the story and just say like, hey, it's, you know, a lot going on. It's real complicated. Yeah, a lot going on. Whereas if you said, look, there's probably 15 different ways to tell this story. But actually today, in the midst of these 15, somebody's dead. So we're choosing to analyze this story through the lens of the fact that someone's dead. So here, mm. we're going to do this. And in light of this, we're going to make some proposals for policy. And we're also going to make some proposals for safety. And we're also going to make some proposals for education. Because this. In war studies and in conflict studies, one of the things we know is that the most potent time for making decisions about peace is right after war. Because right after war, you go, look at what we've done to each other. It's not say, oh, let's wait until the dust settles and let's wait until this and let's wait until the trauma's all gone and all of that. It is to say, we know things in the wake of terror that are true. And one of the things we need to know is to how to pay attention to the truth of those and not wait until the shock is gone and in order to be able to say, oh, look, there's 20 different ways to tell it. Because there are hierarchies of imagination about how it is that our lives impact each other. And there are hierarchies of evidence about how our lives impact each other that are profoundly present to us in the wake of some of the most terrible things. And war studies and peace studies know that peace treaties that are built right after the cessation of war tend to be really brave in what they imagine a population is capable of. The serious question is how to sustain that in the years afterwards when people begin to forget. I'm sure people who are listening are thinking, God, I want them to say some more about that. Are there places where you've said more about these things? Like if someone's uh, tapped into one spot earlier and they 
uh, thought, oh, I, I bet he's said more about this in other ways, and I'd like to keep listening to that. Well, I, it's more that I'd point to other people who are saying things much better than I am. Uh -huh. So I think the U.S. Institute of Peace, based in Washington, D.C., have got some great items of research um, that are really worthwhile reading. I would also point to John Paul Lederach. I think he speaks very wisely about questions to do with conflict and peace. Um, do they say yeah. that with an appropriate Irish accent that somehow makes the you know English the American <laughs> English ear sort of open up and receive things as truth as if the very whisper of God? Uh, Good to hear things about <laughs> because that helps. That that helps a lot. Yeah. Uh, well, you spend a lot of time talking about thinking about the dynamics of group conflict, peace, and reconciliation, and you're also a poet. I'm a songwriter and I have my own reasons for writing songs. Sometimes I just can't not write. But I'm curious about why poetry for you, why art for you. Sometimes I feel like putting out a song when the world is burning is silly or useless. But why do you continue to make, make art mm. and make poems? Well, I'm, I'm really interested in what you said there, Dan. Sometimes you can't not write I'd love to hear it. Can you say something more about that? Because I think it's it's said so beautifully, and I believe you. Why, why <laughs> is it that you can't not write? Or maybe there's not even an answer to it, but can you say yeah. something more about that sentence? I think it's it's trying to put language to emotions and angst that I have trouble articulating otherwise. So it's just mm -hmm. trying to pull that thread until something comes out. And honestly, yeah. it'd be way easier if I could just not worry about <laughs> finding the perfect word for whatever song I'm writing. Yeah, just just can't can't stop. <laughs> yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, and I, what I like about what you're saying is that there is a a sense of of discomfort in the artistic impulse too that it isn't first about putting something out to make an album or to make a name. It is about somehow um trying to think the only way I know how to be alive in this moment is to respond artistically, hopefully practically as well. You know, mm -hmm. I give money, but also then have to ask myself questions and to allow the the questions to take form in me in art. I'm a product of Irish society. Like when I was in school, we were learning poems off by heart in two languages, English and Irish, from the age of five to 17 every week, two different poems. And so in your summer exams every year, you were expected to know many, many poems off by heart to be able to quote them in your in your examinations perfectly. And one of the things I'm really glad at is that that gave me a, a love of poetry and a broad reading of it from a young age, you know. And we weren't just learning cute poems for cute kids when we were five, six and seven. We were learning political poems, learning poems about midlife crises that, of course, we didn't understand, <laughs> but that had a, a power in the tongue when you're saying something, you know, there's just a, a, a deep power in the tongue to hear yourself saying words that's causing the muscle of your mouth to do things that you wouldn't otherwise be doing. And it, it embodied that there are worlds of the future that you will inhabit in the future. And you're just time traveling now mm. to say words that you don't understand yet and to learn them off by heart. I loved that. I thought it was glorious. And I didn't go to fancy schools. I went to the local schools. So this was not in any way any kind of a, an exceptional education. And I, I think one of the things that that did for me is to say that there is a power in language. And I, I began from an early age to write poems. There were certain parts of difficulty in my life. And I, somehow the way it all landed in me was to say, if I can put words on a page and hide the page, I didn't want anyone to read it. I carried mm. my poems around with me in my bag for years so nobody would ever see them. 
I knew somehow that that was some kind of secret ritual that I could read them and begin to make sense of my own life only for myself. And that has continued. Um, poetry isn't only a, a method of survival for me, as it was then, but it continues to be one of the methods of survival. And it also continues to be, I suppose, a, an, an art form that I want to ask questions that aren't just about my own um, life, but I ask questions about Irish life or you know, other aspects of life that are interesting to me. Yeah, that's great. Really great. Do you have a poem you could leave us with? Do you have one that you would, uh, at this moment? That sure. would feel yeah, I do. I like time travel um, in science fiction and so, mm. and multiple universe theory. And so here's a poem that imagines that there was another mm. Podrick in another universe who, who made a little window to shout something through to me that might help. It's called The One Thing. There must have been some other me who lived some other time, who realized he knew the one thing that would save me. And he must have found a little window, opened it and shouted through it that saving sound that saved me. And he must have felt a failure, I'm sure, that other me, because he failed. He did. He didn't save me from the other things that beat me. And he must have sat like some sad god from sadder scriptures and wept at all he failed to do. He had so little time. And all my life, I've been climbing up to little windows, opening them and saying the one thing I can say. Thank you. Mm. Wow. I feel like what that other Podrick did was to shout the word poetry through to me as a child. <laughs> mm. I love that. It didn't save me, but it saved me. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, I know, I know we have to go and I also know that it's, you know, asking you to talk about the poems you make is not everyone's favorite thing. Um, do you remember how that poem came together to you? Did it come in one closer to mm. one motion? Was it bits mm. and pieces? Did it, did it visit yeah. you for a long while? Um, that, that poem actually did arrive in a little package. Yeah, I'm complete. <laughs> yeah. Someone dropped it through um, the window, huh? <laughs> somebody dropped it through the window. That other poetry. I wish he'd visit more often. Um, there was another line in it that I took out. Um, I liked the line, but like at one point it said, um, he must have sat like some sad god from sadder scriptures and wept at all he failed to do. He had so little time and only one line to say and all my life. And, and that line and only one line was on a line by itself. And I showed it to some friends and they were like, yeah, I get what you're doing and I like it, but it's a little bit too obvious. So I, um, mm. I took it out. So that's the only modification mm. to that poem. Mm. Wow. That's very rare. Normally I work on a poem for months. And I, even though that arrived complete, I didn't share it for months and months because I, I wanted mm. to let it sit through mm. a certain kind of um, test of time. Hmm. Do, do you recall the first time or two that you shared it with someone and what that oh, yeah. felt like and how that how did that go the, the first two people i shared it with raymond antrobus and marie howe both said yeah it's lovely get rid of that one line though <laughs> come on <laughs> <laughs> well yeah. hey thank you uh thank you for all the lines um in that poem and for all the lines all the lines today we really really appreciate having you on the podcast wow. and live stream today My yeah pleasure. thank you so nice much my pleasure. And we'll have to have you back on. We got some comments uh, in the chat wanting to hear more about Corey Mila and your work there. So hopefully we can have you back on and, and talk oh, some sure. more. Anytime. Yeah, easy. Yeah. Nice to meet you both. Take care. Thank you, Padre. My pleasure.
And to uh, and to all of you, stick around with us on these on these uh, conversations, whether it's the Wednesday uh, faith related one or Thursdays we talk with scientists and economists. We're going to be on with astrophysicist Paul Wallace tomorrow. Also, pastor and professor and birder Paul Wallace, same guy, real got a quite quite a package of things that he does there uh, and all the other things that we do uh keep up with us over on uh, our youtube channel and over at votecommongood.com you can see our activism and our work around trying to help people make the common good the voting criteria and a lot of times that means having a new community around you that helps you do these things and we hope that people like padrig and others you start to feel like a part of your part of your world is that good for today dan anything that's else great. nope that's it that was a great day all right we'll Love see it. you all later bye